The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. To be quite honest with you, um, I don't really geek out too much on politics. I geek out on other stuff, but once every four years, I geek out on politics, and it was this past Tuesday. This past Tuesday was like the Super Bowl of politics, right? So you know what I geek out on is the actual Super Bowl. But this past Tuesday was the Super Bowl of politics. And so in that late afternoon, I went to our polling place and I cast my ballot. And then I went home and I turned on the news just to see what was going on. And I knew that none of the, none of the voting stations were closed yet, but I just wanted to see what was going on. And they were showing the travel itinerary of all of the candidates and the vice presidential candidates and how they'd gone to like four states that day to campaign. And one of the videos that they showed was a video of President Obama uh, sitting uh, at a call center. And he's sitting down and he picks up the phone and he dials a number and he says, hi, is this Joe? And there's a pause. And then he says, this is Barack Obama. There's a pause, probably confusion on their line. And he says, this is your president. And if I was that guy, I'd probably think it was one of those pre-recordings, you know, that, that they send to you. It's like, oh, Mitt Romney called me today. Barack Obama called me today, right? But it was actually the president calling this man. And so let me ask you this question. What would you do if you had the undivided attention of the president of the United States? What would you do if you had... Um, you had his full attention and there was no distractions. What would, you, what would you ask? What would you say? Would you give him some pointers? Would you challenge him on some things? Would you ask him about what his plans are for the future? What would you do? Uh, that's why he has bodyguards, right? Because people would like to do a various amount of things to the president of the United States. But th- here is the man, the most powerful man in the world, and you would have his undivided attention. What an amazing day that would be. You would never forget it, would you? Let's take it a step further. What if you had the undivided attention of Jesus? What if you had the undivided attention of the most influential man in human history? What would you do if you were face to face, not not in prayer, but literally physically, tangibly, face to face with Jesus? And it was just you and him with no one else around. What would you say to him? Would you challenge him on a few things? Would you ask him, you know, where were you in this difficult time in my life? Would you ask him, what are your plans for my life? Would you share the heartache in your life? Would you ask for healing for you or for someone in your family? What what would you do? I mean, you certainly would never forget that day, would you? Well, today we get to meet such a woman, a woman who has the undivided attention of Jesus. And it is really the least of all people that we would expect would have a one-on-one encounter with Jesus. Today we're going to look at the story or start looking at the story of the Samaritan woman. If you would open up your Bibles to John chapter 4. If you are in the Red Pew Bible, it is page 888. And if you are in the Children's Bible, it is page 1305. This is the story, as I said, of the Samaritan woman. This is the story where we get the name Jacob's Well. Uh, The story lasts for about 40-something verses, 
And so we're not going to cover it all today. We're just going to cover the first half. And the first half is this woman's encounter with Jesus. And so we want to look at this woman's encounter of Jesus and see what it would be like if we would encounter Jesus. And so let's take time to pray because we're going to kind of break it down. We're going to cover the first 26 verses, but we're going to break it up in chunks. So let's pray before we start. Lord, thank you for your word, God. Thank you for this story where you encounter this Samaritan woman, Lord. Thank you for the gift that you offer that we get to discuss and explore today, Lord. God, pray that we would be transformed by this encounter with this woman and by our encounter with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start. John 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he passed through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob, and had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for, from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Let's pause there for a little bit. Let me give you kind of the context. I think we have a map up here. Can you put up the map, Tim? Okay, so Jesus is in Judea ministering, and he is getting more popular than John. Now, when John got popular, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, sent in people to interrogate him. And so Jesus decides that he's going to continue his ministry in Galilee, which is way up there in the north. Now, logic would tell you the the shortest distance between two points is what? A straight line, right? Um, If you get that right on the test, you can credit me now. But the, the shortest point, the shortest way between two points is a straight line. And so to go from Judea to Galilee, one would go through Samaria, and here is Sychar. Now, What's interesting is that the Jews hated Samaritans. They hated them with a passion. They thought they were unclean, that they were dirty. You see, about 700 years prior, the Assyrian Empire came in and conquered this part of Israel. And the Syrians intermarried with the Israelites. And so they were known as half-breeds. And so the, the, the Jews would avoid them. So they would even do so much as to come up here and cross the Jordan River go up and cross back over to go into Galilee just so they wouldn't have to be around the Samaritans. But Jesus says, we're going straight through. We're going straight through Samaria. And this woman is astonished because Jews didn't really relate with Samaritans. They were afraid that they would make them unclean and then they'd have to go through a ceremonial cleaning. And so this woman is amazed. That's why she says, how can you ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? There was actually a law in the books among Jews that they were not allowed to use the same utensils. So for Jesus to drink from the same bucket as this woman was simply unheard of. And she was shocked. And so Jesus asked this woman for a drink of water. But then he responds to her and says, I have a gift for you. I don't know what the woman's thinking. Jesus isn't 
carrying much of anything. He certainly doesn't have a bucket. What gift could he give to this Samaritan woman? So we're going to take time in the rest of this passage through verse 26 and kind of unfold this gift. This is what we're going to look at. First out, we're going to look at the gift itself that Jesus offers, okay? Then we'll look at the receiver of the gift, the receivers of the gift. We'll look at the response we should have to this gift. And then fourthly, we'll look at the giver of the gift. So first, let's look at the gift itself. Look in verse 10 with me. Let's read together. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep, probably about 100 feet deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, remember, Jesus is exhausted from his travels. It's about noon. The sixth hour would be noon. And so it was the heat of the day. And he is extremely thirsty. Well water would have been so satisfying, so relieving, so refreshing. And so he asks this woman for some water. But then he turns it and he says, I have water to give you. You see, while that well water would have been refreshing, it also would have been temporary. And Jesus says, I have water to give to you that will not quench your physical thirst, but it will quench a deeper thirst. It will quench the thirst of your heart and your soul. This is the living water that I have to offer. And so what is this living water that quenches a person's, the thirst of a person's soul? Well, John actually tells us a few chapters later in John 7, you can follow along with me on the screen. Jesus tells us what this living water, this gift from God is. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me and the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then he explains it to us. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so Jesus says, I have a gift to give to you. And the gift I have to give to you is the third person of the Trinity. It's the Holy Spirit. This is amazing to think about, that he who dwelt in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, in the Old Testament, who could only be visited once a year because he is so holy, Jesus says, this person of the Trinity will now dwell inside you, and it will overflow in you. It will fill you to capacity. You will never be thirsty again. You know, Trish and I, a couple... Uh, well, I don't know, about a year or so ago, we went out to Colorado to visit the breeds and help them race and support. And we went on a hike. And this hike went uh, through the uh, Grand Canyon National Park. And you would hike by these different lakes. And they would kind of, you know, you, first you go past, I think it was Bear Lake. 
And then there was uh, Emerald Lake, Nymph Lake, and Dream Lake. I, I think those are the names. But you would hike past this lake. And you'd say, wow, this is so beautiful. And you'd hike up to the next lake and the next lake. And the way these lakes were filled was there was a stream coming down the mountain. And so the stream would come down into the top lake. And the lake would constantly be spilling over into a stream that would go down to the next lake. That would constantly be spilling over that would lead down to the next lake. You see, these lakes were never thirsty for water. God says, that is the gift I give to you. I give to you the Holy Spirit, which your soul will never be thirsty again. Rather, you will overflow with the joy of God. And this is not just temporary satisfying. This will satisfy your soul forever. And so that is the gift that he gives to us, the Holy Spirit Secondly, the receiver of the gift. Look in verse 15 with me. Let's continue the story. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I love this. Jesus says, you know, if you knew what you were doing, you would ask me for living water. And so the woman turns and she says, can I have this water? Right? Jesus doesn't give it to her. (laughs) Look where Jesus goes. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Why do you think this woman went from man to man to man to man to man. Why do women in our culture go from man to man to man to man to man? Why do men go from women to women to women to women? Why do we do this? It's because our souls are thirsty for living water. We are looking for a Savior that will satisfy the deepest needs of our hearts, the deepest needs of our souls. And so we go searching and pursuing these substitute saviors to satisfy what only Jesus can. And so she's going, looking for a Savior, to satisfy the thirst of her soul. And you know how it was going for her? Not very well. Right? She was on, she had at least five husbands, probably more suitors than that. And she was now on a sixth man who she was living with. And did any of them satisfy her? Maybe temporarily, like well water. But it did not give the eternal satisfaction to her soul that she was longing for. And Jesus points this out. He says, you have been searching. You have been thirsty. And I have water that will make you so you will never thirst again. You know, as we look at this woman, what would, what would we call a woman like this? What would, what would our culture call a woman like this? Well, there are many colorful names. But let me tell you what God calls a woman like this. God calls a woman like this a whore. That's that's what he uses in his scriptures in Hosea. Now, I'm not saying that word to be edgy. You know, I don't let my kids say that word. But this is what God says in the book of Hosea. And we may look at such a woman and say, yes, I'm so glad I'm not like her. But what God tells us is we are exactly like her. We have everything in common with this woman. We, like this woman, go to our secret sins. We, like this woman, go to our substitute savers because our souls are thirsty. 
And we don't go to the one who will give us living water. We whore after things like romance, like food, shopping, sports, fame, accomplishments. All of these are good things, but we've made them into ultimate things. We've made them into saviors to satisfy our soul, and they always leave us thirsty in the end, don't they? There's a, uh, there's a carnival in Basel, Switzerland every year, and it's called Foschnacht. I don't know how to say it, but that's, that's how I read it. And basically, it's like Mardi Gras. And the people come out of the streets and they do things morally that they would never do the rest of the year, right? They get wild, they get crazy, they have fun, right? And the whole time they do this while wearing masks so that no one knows what they're doing. No one knows who they are. The Salvation Army started putting up posters to challenge people's assumptions on this. And they put up signs that say, Go see hinter dein mask, which in English is translated God sees behind your mask. Jesus is not deceived by your religious vocabulary, by your religious rituals. Jesus knows your substitute saviors, just like he knew for this woman. Jesus knows your sin. Jesus knows where you run to. God knows what you whore after. Deuteronomy 31, Jeremy read a larger portion, but I just want to take a clip of this. Deuteronomy 31, 16 reads like this. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people, which is the people of God, this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land and they, that they are entering. They will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. And then what is the result of their forsaking of God? Verse 17 then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. Because we have hoard after idols, because we have forsaken the living God, he tells us that he must forsake us. Because we have forsaken him, he must forsake you. Unless... Of course, there is one who is forsaken in your behalf. Do you remember the words of Jesus on the cross when the darkness covered the land and he screams out to God and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why was Jesus forsaken? Because he took on my whoredom. He took on your whoredom. He took on our forsakenness that we never again have to be forsaken for God. You see, Jesus didn't die for us because we were lovely, pretty, wonderful women. He died for us because we were whores. And so now we are no longer, that is no longer identity, but we are the bride of Christ and he cherishes us. And no longer will he forsake us. We receive that great promise in Hebrews 13, in which God says to us, I will never leave you or forsaken you. Jesus has already been forsaken on your behalf if you trust in him. So let me ask you, what are your substitute saviors? What are your secret sins? Do they satisfy you? Do they satisfy your soul? Maybe temporarily, like well water. 
but you will always be thirsty until you turn to the true Savior, Jesus Christ. Augustine, a great father in our faith, put it this way in talking to God. He said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Have you found rest for your soul, or is it restless? If it's restless, if it's thirsty, it's because you have turned to every Savior except the one that can satisfy the longings of your soul. So we see the gift is the Holy Spirit, this living water. The recipient are needy people who chase after substitute saviors. Next, we see the response. As Jesus reveals this woman's sin, she does what most of us would do. She changes the subject, right? And she changes the subject to a topic that is actually the deeper heart issue. And she doesn't know that she's doing this, but this is a great subject to change the subject to. Because this is her primary problem. Her primary problem was worship. She worshiped these substitute saviors and did not worship the savior that would satisfy her soul. And so she goes in to talking about worship and Jesus is thinking, perfect, right? Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, in the place where people ought to worship, uh, is the place people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, referring to the hour of Jesus' death and resurrection, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The assumption here is that the woman wasn't worshiping in spirit and truth. And so how do we know if we are worshiping in spirit and truth? What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Well, let's break that down. First off, what does it mean to worship in spirit? Now, there are several commentators on this. Some think it means the Holy Spirit. But I believe it's talking more about the spirit of our soul, the depth of who we are. This woman's religion was external. It was going through rituals, going to this mountain, doing these things. But she was not worshiping with all that she is and all that is inside of her. And Jesus says, that is the worship that I desire. Worship that is uncontrollable. Worship that is overflowing. Worship that is delighted in me, God says. It's like when the Packers score a touchdown and you just erupt. Or when you see a a loved one who comes home after a long time and you hug them. It comes from within the joy, the delight, the love. It comes from the depth of your spirit. And this is what Jesus is calling us to, to worship in spirit, but also to worship in truth. As I mentioned, the Samaritans had blended in with the, uh, sorry, that part of Israel blended with the Assyrians to make the Samaritans. And they created their own religion of sorts. They actually took the, the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch. And that was their Bible. They didn't recognize anything beyond that. The book of Joshua, uh, on the Psalms, nothing. Only the Pentateuch. And one of the major reasons why they stuck to those five books only was because it did not require them to go worship in Jerusalem from the way that they read it. 
and they didn't want to go worship in Jerusalem. And so they had bended God's word to fit their desires. We don't want to worship in Jerusalem, so we'll just stick away from the books that tell us to do that. And so they actually uh, put together a competing temple, a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, which he talks about here in 400 BC. It gets torn down, but that is where they now go and worship. And so they twist God's word in order to, uh, to, to, to pad how they want to worship him. That's why here in verse 22, Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Now, this is an extremely offensive position today, isn't it? For any of us to claim that there is only one true religion, to claim that there's only one true way to God, to worship God, it is offensive. In a culture that says, whatever is good for you is good for you. Whatever is good for me is good for me. But Jesus does not care. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus says, you must worship in truth according to God's revealed word. Worship the one true God, not a figment of your imagination that allows you to plunder in your secret sins and chase your substitute saviors. Worship the one true God who will quench the thirst of your soul. All right, finally, the giver. We learn a lot about Jesus in this passage. We learn that he's greater than the patriarchs that Jesus knows our secret sin, that Jesus brings a worship composed of spiritual spirit and truth. But finally, Jesus makes the most audacious claim of all. Look at verse 25 with me, 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. He will clear it up, right? Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. Now this response is loaded with weight. Jesus, this word he is actually added in by the English translator. Jesus says to you, I am. This is the first of seven times in the gospel of John where Jesus says, I am, which is the declaration of the name of God given in the Old Testament. You know, our sermon series, if you look on the front of your bulletin, says, I am. Who does Jesus claim to be? Jesus claims to be the great I am. The name that God gives to himself before Moses in the Old Testament, the Lord Jehovah. And so he makes this audacious claim. We'll dive into it more as we go forward. But Jesus is also claiming that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. Now, most of us, if you've grown up in Green Bay, this is a fairly uh, Christian culture in some ways. And so uh, we're raised to believe this, and it becomes routine to us. But to this woman, imagine this, okay? This woman says, all my descendants have been waiting for the Christ. He's coming. He'll clear this up. Not only have they been waiting, but the whole world had been waiting for the Christ, for the Messiah to come. And then here's Jesus, right? Stinky, sticky, tired, dirty. He looks like a homeless man. And Jesus says, that guy, that's me. <laughs> I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. Really? You're not really packaged that well, you, you know? Um, you may have heard of the man in Adamstown, Pennsylvania in 1989. He bought a painting for $4 at a flea market because he liked the frame. The painting itself actually was not that attractive. And as he tried to pull the picture out, he discovered behind the painting was a piece of paper. 
And it was one of the original copies of the Declaration of Independence. And he thought, this is going to change my life forever, right? And so he sold it, hoping to get $800,000. Unfortunately, he only got $2.42 million. But you see, it came in such this, this, this mean-looking package, a simple package, and yet there was something so extremely valuable that it changed his life forever. Jesus comes in in humility, looking like a homeless man. And yet there is such great value, as we will see next, next time we look at this passage, as we continue it forward, that he changes this woman's world forever. This is how valuable Jesus is. You know, you may know about Jesus intellectually. You may even intellectually say, you know, Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my King. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. But it has not yet captured your heart. It has not yet changed your world. And yet when we grasp how sinful we are and how much he loves us, how much he delights in us, how he came to make a wretch his treasure, our life cannot go unchanged. We'll look at that more as we continue the passage in two weeks. So just to recap, the gift that Jesus gives to offer us is living water, the Holy Spirit welling up into eternal life. The receivers of this gift are people like us, people who have chased after, adulterers who have gone after other gods. The response is a worship composed of spirit and truth, and it is offered by the Messiah, the Christ, this lowly man, Jesus. But I want to end by looking at one verse that we haven't really covered yet. Verse 4. And it says, And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. The Greek word actually means it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. And so the question is, why was it necessary for him to go through Samaria? He could have gone various routes to get to Galilee. He didn't have to go through Samaria. So why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Jesus had to go through Samaria to encounter this woman. This was his mission. And so he goes through Samaria. There's a great story of Abraham Lincoln as we're thinking about presidents and things like that. Story of an eight-year-old girl who wrote Lincoln a letter telling him that he should grow a beard because it might help him win the election. It might cover up the, uh, the, the, the the, the bad looks that he had, okay? So she writes him this letter, says, grow a beard, it will help you win the election. Lincoln obviously could have been offended by it, right? I probably would be. But he writes back to the girl and he says, you know, thank you for the advice. When my campaign comes through town, I'd like to stop and visit you. So the day comes, the campaign is coming through town and he's coming through town on a train and, um, and, and, and everyone is gathered at the station to welcome this presidential candidate. Uh, everyone's in their, their best clothing, the band's playing, it, everything's spruced up. Well, outside of town, the train breaks down, and Lincoln is, is warm from being in the train, and so he gets out and he starts walking into the town, and he finds out the house that this girl lives, and he goes and he knocks on the door, and the door opens, and the maid there just about falls over, and he says, hey, I, it's, it's so-and-so here, Jackie, or whatever her name is. And so Jackie runs up with her playmate. They bring him in, and they have a tea party with fake tea, you know, and they hang out. And Lincoln is there with her. And then he, he says, all right, it's time for me to go. And as he's walking out, he says, by the way, how do you like my beard, right? <laughs> he 
And so he walks back to the train and he gets on the train and he gets on the train and the train starts heading and it comes up to the station with all of the people waiting to hear about Lincoln, waiting to give him praise, waiting to tell him that they want him as president. And his train goes right by the station. You see, he came to that town for that little girl. Jesus came through Samaria to see that woman. Jesus came through the Samaria of the world for you. He came into this messed up, broken world because he loves you. Are you here today and you have a thirsty soul that you have been trying to quench at every well in the world? Jesus says this morning, come to me, drink, and never be thirsty again. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are a superior Savior to all these other things we chase. Forgive us for the ways we have pursued after other things, God. Help us. Help us to treasure you above all, that our souls will never be thirsty again. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.